Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to episode 50 of Health Unchained. I'm so grateful for all my listeners, guests, and supporters who have been through this journey with me. We have learned so much about the landscape of the healthcare industry through the lens of blockchain technology pioneers. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Today's guest, Andy Singleton, is the founder of HumanDB.ai and longtime software engineer and entrepreneur. HumanDB.ai is an early-stage startup that organizes apps, experts, and data to treat cancer and provides an open-source platform that humans can use to run private AI advisors. In his bio, Andy says he's written about a million lines of code during his career and launched more than 20 software, software as a service, and online services products. He's built advisory products for Bloomberg, Reuters, and Citibank, and ran machine learning and genetic algorithms for trading. We talk about how blockchain is actually not useful for storing medical records and why federated learning is so important in deploying effective machine learning algorithms. I really enjoyed speaking with Andy, and I hope you do too. And now, let's start the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Andy Singleton, entrepreneur and software engineer, who's actually based here in the greater Boston area. He is the founder of HumanDB and also Unbundled Fund, among other ventures. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Ray. So first, I feel like it'd be best to start off with a little bit about your background and your experience. So do you kind of want to walk me through what you've done in the past and what led you to building HumanDB? Yeah, I'm glad that you introduced me as an engineer and an entrepreneur because that's really how I think of myself. My talents are in engineering, and I started by building computers back in the days uh, in the late 70s when you couldn't actually buy them. And uh, I worked my way through college that way. I ended up in a fintech business, early fintech business. I worked for a guy named Ivan Boski, who was a, uh, a hedge fund guy who got thrown in jail for insider trading. So oh, wow. the people who worked for him at that point couldn't get jobs. So I had my first entrepreneurial experience helping to start a company called SNL um, SNL Securities. It was at that point. It's now SNL Financial, a very, very successful uh securities research firm with some of the people who had worked at Boski. Um, I had a fight with the founder there and I got thrown out and uh, built a whole bunch of other fintech and financial research projects, products, and eventually became interested in an early form of machine learning called evolutionary algorithms. And what so was I, this? Kind of like what year around? This was back in the early 90s, 1991, wow. 1992. And there was a vogue in those days for um, neural nets. 
people that just discover neural nets, the very simple kind, not the deep learning, which is many layers, and um, evolutionary algorithms, what they called artificial life. So you could actually run evolution in a computer to do things like evolve trading rules, hmm. which I did. Um, that was that actually burned out. People didn't get great results from that, although I got pretty good results from my machine learning, and there were certain things that I did. Um, and people put it aside for about 20 years, and then 20 years later came back to it, and uh, they had more data. And so now we have a much bigger boom in all of those same techniques. Something to think about in the evolution of technology, that there's often these 20-year right. gaps. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to diverge by saying that the reason that I got into evolutionary algorithms in the 90s is because I've always had an inter interest in innovation and how it works. And so you can think of a lot of what I do as being experimenting with different kinds of innovation. And later in the podcast, we'll talk about how that's moved from that's moved into the realm of social engineering and building communities. And we now have a whole technology for that. But what I was interested in back in the 90s is the idea that we could model innovation in the economy using computers through this uh, through these evolutionary algorithms. And I actually was able to learn a lot about how evolution works. And I'm convinced that in the future, this is another 20 year lag, that um, in the future, we really will be engineering devices and companies through and software called evolutionary programming when you apply it to software, we'll be engineering it with these evolutionary algorithms, essentially massive trial and error and tactics um, that are similar to Darwinian evolution, but um, more sophisticated in that made faster using techniques like symbiosis, which I discovered was very important. So I'm convinced that we're eventually going to come to that purely back to that purely mechanized form of discovery and innovation. So, so that's really what I was investigating there. Um, and if I can just continue down that, yeah. down that rat hole, you can start to see that there's now lots of different ways of creating technologies of innovation. There's how we design our economy. There's how we design a big company like Amazon, which has structural features that allow it to produce new products. There's machines that can make new stuff evolutionary algorithms, and there's social engineering, designing uh, communities that are open source or blockchain communities that can actually work at a bigger scale even than Amazon. So that's the core of what I'm interested in, and, and you see lots of different pieces of that in my career. In In the 90s, I, got in, I, I was using the internet, and so I started, a, uh, for practical reasons, I started a company called Cambridge Interactive that did e-business consulting. I turned that into an enterprise software company called Power Steering, um, which got sold, rolled up, and, and did IPO. I started a SaaS, an on-demand SaaS company called Assembla, which I sold a couple of years ago. And that's given me a couple of years where I can experiment with some of these new projects like Aboveboard, which is a blockchain securities um, software, software for handling securities on the blockchain. Turns out nobody wants that, but what they do want is a good liquid way to invest in small cap assets. So we've turned that into something called unbundled fund for which there's a lot more demand. And it also gave me a chance to study the whole problem of human health records. 
yeah. sort of ask the question of why is it that when you go to the doctor, they don't know anything about you and they can't advise you effectively and really take a, I've had a chance to back up and take a kind of a large scale so look at that. What brought you to the healthcare space? So you've been in fintech, it seems like, for the majority of your career, you know, give or take, um, as well as innovation as a as a form of developing great technology. But what led you to the healthcare space? I was doing some consulting mm -hmm. and talking to the people that run healthcare delivery operations, providers, they're called, and. I noticed that they are really quite frustrated with their doctors. It's very difficult to quality control the doctors. And I just became intellectually interested in this issue of how can we provide a parallel stream of quality controlled healthcare advice and even more comprehensive healthcare advice. And what interests me about it is that it's a chance for me to apply my um, superpower, which is really software architecture. So uh, we have a lot of information about healthcare, and we have a lot of information about people's health, but we can't use it. Right, it's not very useful right. because we have very poor architecture for dealing with it. And you could, people have very simple ways of thinking about it. If I'm going to give you advice, I'm going to collect all your data in my computer. And if I'm going to give a million people advice and I'm going to learn from that, I'm going to collect information from a million people in my computer. But they also have very simplistic ways of thinking about the security around that, that we shouldn't do that because it can violate people's privacy. And in fact, there's laws right. that in many cases prevent us from doing that. So that's a software architecture problem, which can actually be solved uh, by pulling out the bag of tricks and using, doing things like federated execution. We'll send the analysis to the data. And... Um, We'll definitely talk about that Com a little bit. Community later. organization, right? You know, how do we how do we organize the flow of both data and knowledge? So, so I became interested intellectually, and I'm now convinced that there's an opportunity to do something very big because people have been thinking in a fairly simplistic way about the architecture, and now we have people coming out of places like the blockchain community that know a lot about how to organize both people and software at scale and we can apply these learnings i'm kind of curious a little bit about what you think about certain healthcare standards data standards like fire smart on fire um do you have any experience working with that or because i feel like that is sort of trying to pull the bag of tricks out and separate each of these data attributes for healthcare and healthcare records um what do you think about Using. I think fire is great and it's starting to succeed. So basically I'll, I'll take advantage of anything that works. Mm -hmm. And the background behind fire is that people have realized that it's important to be able to actually use information about patients for 20 years. And they've mounted a heroic effort over the last 20 years to, to, to get this data in the form of standards, to get all the providers to, to put their information in a standard form so that they can interpret it. And this effort has gone through many stages, literally decades long. People have dedicated their lives to beating their heads bloody against this wall. Yeah. And um, there was a federal government effort to get all the hospitals and healthcare providers to put in 
EHRs, electronic health records, mm -hmm. which is kind of the foundation for, for fire data distribution. That was back in 2009. So 10 years ago, um, that was, there were some successes. Hospitals are now adopting these things at scale, but also failures because they were forced to adopt. The software is quite, really quite terrible for patients and doctors. It's really excellent software for running hospitals. Um, but having put that foundation in, they worked through a decades-long effort um, in something called HL7 to develop this standard called FHIR for representing the data in API. So they can basically JSON. They can give you JSON data that uh, describes your health record. And Apple picked it up. Apple's put a lot of energy into getting hospitals to, to free up this FHIR data and put it into Apple Health, which is a very interesting advanced example of what I'm going to call data custody. And they've gone and gotten federal and even state laws that say that you have a patient right of access, you have the right to this data. So it's been a very long, huge, heroic effort. Um, so I, I like in it's working. Fire all yeah. of a sudden is working. It's the first time in history that we've had this sort of thing. The downside of that is this, the reliance on standards is a very, very long process. It's actually a really bad way to get the data you want. Because what you have to do is spend years, four or five years, there's been many iterations, figuring out how you want to represent the data. What is the standard? And then you have to spend literally 10 years waiting while hospitals and labs and things implement software that uses that format. And these are not software companies. They don't run continuous delivery of their latest software. It literally takes them 10 years to turn over the software. So that's a very long, slow process of sort of pushing data out. And a lot of data that you get, you don't use. So what I'm proposing, again, out of my architecture bag of tricks is to say, let's reverse that. Let's not try to get people to push data out in a standard format. It takes them a long time to do that. And it's not demand driven. There's a lot of wasted energy. Let's just pull the data we need. Whatever they've got, let's just write a script to go get it. So for any given set of rules or AI model, any given consumer of this data, it'll have certain data that it wants. We'll try to organize that. In fact, I'm doing that now into some sort of standard data dictionary. And a, a lot of the standard data dictionary will be FHIR, hmm. right? But not all of it. FHIR doesn't handle genomic data very well. So, or, you know, and there's a lot of things we can say about images that are not in fire. So what we really care about is what we want, the data we want, not the standard. And we could actually just use open source scripts. We could have thousands and thousands and thousands of them, one for each provider's computer system to, to read their data, find their endpoint, interpret that data, the weirdness of like the units they use. Mm -hmm. Did they use centigrade or Fahrenheit? in the same field, right? Um, and turn that into the data that our models want. That would be demand-driven. It's much more efficient. It's also very fast. I don't have to wait 10 years for someone to implement a new system. I can spend two days writing and testing a script and 30 minutes fixing it every time the software changes. Yeah, and I think it is great. Like, thank you for sharing all that. But uh, I think you know Apple adopting Fire at a you know rapid pace, that's really great. And I also know the VA is now working uh, with their interoperability APIs. And I think Apple has been working with the VA for a while now too. Um, and all this data sharing that's come about, what do you think has changed? Like, I know that the healthcare industry has always been like very protective over their data, but now it seems like people are very interested in opening up and allowing them to 
share all this information, patient information with other organizations. I get the concept behind it, but why did it take 10 years or more than 10 years to do that? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, if you think about the process, they literally have to adopt new software, okay. which takes 10 years if you're running a hospital and doing a million other things to try to help patients. And now there's standard platforms. So one of the side effects of this is people, everybody's consolidating on a platform called Epic. Mm -hmm. And so if it drives this consolidation, which I, I think is not really that healthy, if you look at the Epic software, but um, you having gone through that process of, of putting these platforms in, it's much easier for them to deliver data. And the second thing that's changed is there's a demand for the data because um, we can maybe get into this later, but people, the idea of personal health records and personal data delivery doesn't work because people don't want data. When somebody says to you, the programmers are constantly saying this, they're, they're going to people and saying, wouldn't you love to control your data? And the answer is no, that's a pain in the butt. Why would I want to have to spend time and energy think about controlling the data? That's literally what 98% of people think when the programmer says, isn't this great? We're going to control your data. So, so they don't want it, but, but there's apps, apps and software and the software-based advisors you have do want this data. Since there's so many more of them, and since everybody has them on their phone, right, mm -hmm. then, then there's uh now there's a strong incentive to do this. So those are the two things that came together, just the natural cycle of platform adoption and the actual demand and usefulness. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the guests on my show who are talking about how the patient can own their own data and that's going to be great. I kind of, I think it would be great. I would like to own my own data, but I understand that many people, most people would prefer someone else to kind of manage all of that. Um, so yeah, and so if well, if I could just drill down on that, before I started this project, I interviewed people from 12 different failed personal health record projects. So the idea behind personal health records is that hospitals have your data, they use it to bill you and, you know, turn you into a billing code. Yeah. Um, what Very if we much. could get our data and then we could actually use it to get great health advice? And, and that's where we're going with HumanDB. But it turns out this has been tried at least 100 times. Um, it's been tried by lots of startups. Um, Microsoft had HealthVault. There was Google Health. Uh, you know, it's been tried by huge companies. It just doesn't work. And it doesn't work because people themselves don't want personal health records. It's sort of a no demand. But now with this, by focusing on apps and software as the source of demand, we can make some progress. And this, this idea of control your data, yeah, it's what I learned is that will kill any project that asking people to do that and to spend time and energy on that will kill any project from any entrepreneur or any technology company or any healthcare company, no matter how good they are. Very it's that powerful of a negative force. Um, so yeah, I'd kind of like to get into human DB and also a parallel company or organization called my cancer DB that you're somewhat involved in. Can you kind of explain your, uh, involvement there, and then also go into the details of HumanDB? Yeah, the original idea behind HumanDB was just a software architecture observation, which is that um, I didn't really know how we were going to get over this problem that people don't want to manage their data. But if they did take an interest in it, or if one of their agents did take an interest in it, then something really interesting would happen. We would start to accumulate 
so much data in one place, the data trail that you have is actually so big that we wouldn't be able to move it around the internet. Hmm. Um, and even stuff like whole genome sequencing gets you into that situation. If you, you know, in the future, kid will be born, we'll do a whole genome sequence of what, what they call the germline, and then we'll be dragging that data around and using that to provide advice. And but it's too big to move around the internet. So we would actually have to have a different kind of architecture where in, we put the data in one place, that's your human DB, mm-hmm. wherever that is, sort of like the Apple Health Vault, similar architecture. And then we bring the advisors to the data. If and what do you mean by advisors? In, advisors could be anything from simple rules like biomarkers. If you have this gene, you shouldn't take this drug. Okay. It's a lot of the things that we know about that. Um, it's a it's an area called pharmacogenomics or much more sophisticated analysis that says, we looked at your my computer, which is this, my computer program, which is packaged in this Docker container that I brought to you or into this app that I brought to your phone. That's kind of the Apple topology. My computer program looked at your whole genome sequence and it can tell you that you know, this is how we're gonna cure your cancer, right? And it's a much more complicated, it might be a much more complicated AI level of understanding that uses the big data. As we get more of this big data, we're going to get advisors who are more sophisticated in advising us where to go, what to study, and what treatments to pursue, or what things to avoid in order to be healthier and live longer. So I made this architectural observation, and I put it aside, and... About a year later, I got a call from a friend of mine who I hadn't talked to in a while. And he said, Andy, I've been diagnosed with this terrible kind of cancer. And this friend, he's a guy named Steve Aldrich. He's a, he's a fascinating person. Uh, he studied evolutionary biology. And really, cancer is all about how things evolve in your body. Um, they gave him six weeks to live three years ago. And since then, I've met a lot of sort of very sophisticated super patients like Steve. And what Steve said is, I'm shopping for something called a neoantigen vaccine, which involves analyzing my cancer genome and figuring out what it looks like to my immune system and then generating uh, a neoantigen. It's a fragment of a protein that triggers my immune system to attack the cancer. So it's a complicated process that starts with analyzing the genome of the cancer and trying to figure out what it looks like and how your immune system is going to identify it. And he had a whole genome sequence from a company called Human Longevity Institute, um, which was founded by his friend Craig Venter. And he was actually carrying it around on a hard drive. So sneaker net, right? In back when I was growing up, we had sneaker net. We'd carry stuff around on, on hard drives. And so that's what he was doing. And he said, Andy, can you help me with this so that I can shop this data around to neoantigen vaccine providers? And of course, that fit perfectly with the architecture that I had proposed and sort of put aside that we would pile the data in one place and then bring in different kinds of analysis. So Steve adopted that for his project, which is essentially a collaborative of cancer patients called MyCancerDB. And they have a, they're, they're going to try to do this in a general way, collect information about the cancer patients that are their clients and provide sophisticated advice. But what they're actually doing right now is pursuing the neoantigen idea. And so, 
Yeah, I'm curious how what how advanced is the neo antigen vaccine process or operation? How many people have been cured of their cancer using this sort of technology? I would say several hundred. Right now, it's in phase one trials. It's it's becoming a large industry, and there are several wow. companies that have gone public on the basis of their neo antigen vaccine research. There, there. A lot of this stuff is through phase one, which is a few dozen patients and into phase two. Um, that's the kind of trial that Steve was participating in. And uh, so we don't know everything about how to make it work, but it can be pretty effective the way cancer treatments are effective, which is about 30% of the time, you know, for 30% of the patients. And um, what Steve's doing is he's He's taking this another step. So I made a software architecture observation. He made a community architecture observation, which is that the way the FDA is approving these things is inside companies, siloed companies where they do everything. They do the analysis, they do the manufacturing, they do the delivery, they do the validation, checking to see if it works. And actually this would be much, much faster and more efficient if that were a supply chain where you had lots of people who could do analysis Mm-hmm. This containerized analysis. And then you had places that can manufacture these vaccines. It's actually a fairly simple process. There's a machine that does it. Is there like a requirement by the FDA to do it all in one house? Or can that supply chain idea, idea become reality? Well, Steve's going to find out about that. The <laughs> FDA, the, the main problem with it is the cost of validating of closing the loop and seeing whether that it it all worked. That process of validating and going through trials with whatever process you have is so expensive that only big companies that are sort of designed to capture all the money can make it work. Whereas what Steve is saying is, look, it doesn't have to be this big expensive process. It could actually be very cheap. We could have a a DNA sequencer in one corner of the room to look at my cancer. We could have a a protein synthesizer in another corner of the room to make the neoantigen vaccine. We could be using open source software that millions of people with similar rooms around the world are using. It could be a very different situation if we had an inexpensive way to validate it, to see whether it worked. And basically just by having good tracking, which is what I'm starting to focus on with HumanDB. But you can see that it's a, it's a very different way of thinking about it. And it, it's appropriate for something like neoantigen vaccine treatment because neoantigen vaccine treatment doesn't kill you. It it stimulates your immune system. It's a right. vaccine. It's not like chemotherapy. But you can do it. Yeah, you can do it a lot of different times in experimental ways. And that's actually a much better idea than than sort of going very, very slowly and carefully because you don't want to kill someone. Right. No, that's fair. Maybe one day I'll have Steve on the show and get some more information on how he's doing, what progress he's made. Um, I got another question here for you. So many different stakeholders in the healthcare industry would be affected or would possibly benefit from human db so i'm thinking providers labs patients payers can you kind of talk a little bit about how each of those stakeholders would benefit from human db yes although what i'm going to do is i'm going to divide the original human db idea into two pieces because as sort of integrated we're going to get all your data and then we're going to get all the analysis all in one place that was impossible that concept of human to be is not something that I can push through as a small scale entrepreneur. So what I did is I divided it into two pieces. I sort of made it mix and match for each of those potential user bases. One piece is data custody. We'll have a place where you can put data 
that's going to be analyzed and have it handled confidentially, be encrypted, only you can read it, or only you and selected parties will be able to read it. How is it encrypted or how is it protected? What would the patient, is it a username and password? What kind of? um... Well, this is where the blockchain tricks come in public with public key encryption. So you can put data in the box and give it technically a secret symmetric key. (laughs) And then you can pass to anybody who has a public key, which we all have because we use HTTPS or we have because we have blockchain wallets to anybody who has a public key, we can use their public key to encrypt the access to the data and then they can unwrap it you know, using the secret symmetric key. So there's basically using tricks with key management and key passing, you can create these secure boxes. And so that's data custody. And the idea of data custody is you're going to make data more useful because um, if you're worried about data confidentiality, if you're a provider or payer or lab, you could just take the data you're worried about and throw it into one of these boxes. Now it's not really your problem. Um, If you want to share it so you're a provider <laughs> and you send a patient to a lab because you've identified that this patient's likely to get either they have cancer and they need the full genomic sequencing or they're likely to get a drug like warfarin where we can tell whether you're going to respond positively or negatively to that drug with a simple genetic test you might say okay this patient's at risk we should get this diagnostic we should send a sample to a lab the lab would do some sequencing or analysis now you have two parties that really need to look at this data and, and keep track of it. The, the health record originally that identified the risk factors and the lab results. So they could all put their two stones into the stone soup of a shared HumaDB box. It's a very simple API we're building for doing that. And then later on, we can do the second piece of human to be. So half of it is data custody. Let's make that really simple and easy so that people have more ways of thinking about handling confidential data. They can handle bigger data. They can enhance it, right, by munging it together and they can share it and without all these obstacles, confidentiality obstacles. So that's the data custody side. The other side is how do we use the data? We need analysis. We need rules that can look through and say, well, all these, Based on all of these gene variants that you have, these are drugs you should avoid, or these are drugs that will work for you. That's a simple example. It's called biomarkers. Um, and it turns out there's no source for that either. And there's hundreds of different sets of rules. There's rules that tell you um, authorization rules. Your payer will pay for this treatment, or your payer will pay for this diagnostic because you're at risk. Um, decision support rules. This is the next thing you should do in treatment. Uh, and then companion diagnostics. We looked at you and you're a terrific candidate for our very expensive drug. Pharmaceuticals invest all the time and pharma, pharma companies invest in these companion diagnostic rules and they're making more sophisticated models for that. Um, before it's a companion diagnostic, it's a clinical trial qualification. We've looked at you and you should really be in our clinical trial. So these are all examples where we use either simple rules or more complicated AI models to look at the data. So the other half of HumanDB, I call it the ambient project, is creating a global workflow to aggregate together those rules and models. And they start to fit together when you use them for the benefit of a patient. So now the provider has said, you're at risk of getting this drug. 
we should check with this $49 test that a company called Sanford Health, a healthcare provider and lab called Sanford Health has, we should check to see whether you're going to respond negatively to this drug. They send the sample off the provider, which might be the VA in the example I'm giving, and the lab, which is Sanford in this example, can put their data in one place. Now a pharma company can actually send a query to that data. They could say, can you run this model, check for drug interactions? So will existing EMRs be able to utilize your APIs as well in order to do this, in order to check if a patient is susceptible to like a medication allergy, for example? Is that- yeah, one way of thinking about this is just a data preparation layer for data that you're going to keep in the EMR. So providers are going to naturally say and incorrectly say that they have all the data they need mm-hmm. in their EMR and that they don't need this data box. So that's what providers are going to say. And in that case, you would be running HumanDB just to run these scripts to pull the data out in standard format. So now we have a standard format and a standard environment that we can use to present the data to the models. At that point, you might throw it away and say, okay, I have the information I need in my EMR. But this is a very important thing that I've learned in the last month. Um, If you're providing advice, Mm -hmm. so you might have some way of knowing whether they're detecting whether someone was going to be vulnerable to an allergic reaction, you should really check to see whether that advice is good. Every time you make a recommendation, you should put aside the evidence, it's called evidence, the evidence you used for that recommendation. And later on, you should go back and check. You should have a longitudinal record, as they call it, over time to see whether someone followed that advice and whether it was effective. And the FDA is actually enshrining this in rules for something they call pre-certification of digital health advice. There's no good way to do it right now. So you can imagine that one side effect of the... So we have a provider and they say, we have everything we need. We have this great EMR. Mm-hmm. We're just going to send you some data so you can put it in a standard environment for your models to run and we can get the advice out. Then we're going to throw that away. Well, if we can persuade them to just keep the data, which we've now standardized, right, that case in custody, the next time they go back and check on something, fully identified custody, right? The great thing about this is we don't have to de-identify the data if we if we don't share it, right? If we're using this federated architecture where we're not sharing it, we put it aside in this standard format. We can go back and check on the results later because now I can build in a whole side effect of, of building a, a paper trail, a longitudinal record, in this case, a digital trail to check on the results. So I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but it starts to show you how um, there are enormous gaps in the, in our ability to just learn about healthcare because we can't do this tracking. And this, this is one of the places where we can stick in the validation loop, the continuous integration loop. Yeah. And it's, you know, the field of medicine is a field where people are still learning. So we can't say we know everything. Let's just add AI and we'll be, we'll be um, recommending all the great advice for patients. It's not, doesn't work that way. Uh, I'm kind of interested in learning more about federated learning from you. And how would you explain it to someone who knows nothing about federated learning? Well, the idea of machine learning is that you get a whole bunch of data in one place, for instance, records from a million people. And then you could use essentially fancy statistics to show that if they have this gene, 
they're going to respond positively or negatively to that drug. You see enough cases in that data. The problem with that is that there are actually practical problems with accumulating that database of a million people. Mm -hmm. um, the data may all be in different formats um, from different sources. The sources often do not want to share it with you, or the sources may be legally prohibited from sharing it with you. So for instance, in Europe and many other jurisdictions, you're not allowed to send this data across national boundaries. So if you want to do a global study of the relationship between biomarker A and drug B, you actually would be prohibited by law. So the idea of federated learning is we're not going to send the data out. Each, everybody has their own pile of data, and we're going to send out some sort of an algorithm that's going to ask questions about the data, and we're going to put that together into an AI model that's similar to what we would have if we had a million records all in one place. And so you're sending the AI to the local patients. In this case, well, there's two ways to think of it. Federated learning is about sending the, the algorithm, the learning algorithm, which is often like a neural net kind of an algorithm that can sort of run, you know, case by case. And it's often about sending the algorithm to a provider or a lab that has a lot of data all in one place. It's not about sending it to the patient. Because okay. in this case, we, we want to learn from aggregated data. Got it. What HumanDB does is different. We take those models later. We do last mile delivery of advice to a single patient. So after you do this learning from aggregated data or federated data, because you can't pull it into one place, but you can send your learning algorithm out to all those places. After you do that, you end up with this rule or this AI model that says, I can look at you and I can give you the benefit of what I learned from a million patients and give you some advice. We distribute that. We distribute that to one patient. And what's happened in the industry is um, federated learning is just one tactic out of many that companies are doing to using to invest in the development of statistical and AI models for providing health advice. There's a huge amount of investment and technique going into that effort, but very few people are thinking about last mile delivery. How do we actually deliver that for the benefit of each of the 7 billion people on this earth? That's our mission at HumanDB is to figure that out. Interesting. I wonder if companies like Apple are thinking about that, bringing the algorithm to the you know, last mile to the patient on their iPhone, for example. Yes, they are. I think Apple has sort of stumbled into a great architecture for that. Or not stumbled, but they, they've thought about it consciously. But it's... They've packaged it in typical Apple fashion in a way that you can only use if you have an iPhone. So they made it, you know, they've done something great, but they've made it a lot less useful. And in general, this is this is true of Apple, but it's a very closed system. Um, what they've done is they've created a data custody system. They that's very, very similar to HumanDB, where they've said, send us data, you know, we'll collect data from your provider, from your lab, we'll put it in your Apple health record, we'll encrypt it. So it it's in custody with us in encrypted form, and you can only read it on your phone, which has special, um, special software and hardware for handling the keys that we use to unwrap the data. And then we're going to create a market for these apps that are the advisors that look at this data. Mm -hmm. And we're going to use this, this custody environment where these apps, all of your data is available, but only on your phone 
to create fully informed apps. So that is indeed the vision for how this should work. We just have to unpack the box from the Apple weirdness. Interesting. And also so, unpack it from you know your phone, which typically, if you're in my family, you drop in the toilet every once in a while. <laughs> Welcome to the Health on Chain News Corner. This week's news article is about DNA testing data privacy. A Florida detective was recently granted a warrant to access and search the nearly 1 million people's genetic information held by consumer DNA site GED Match, even without their consent. The warrant signed by a judge in Florida's 9th Judicial Circuit Court in July has generated new leads in the case but no arrests. It seems to be the first time a judge has granted this sort of warrant, choosing to overrule a company's DNA privacy policies. More than 26 million people have taken an at-home DNA test, and for years, the vast majority of that data has been off-limits to law enforcement. The biggest sites, Ancestry.com and 23andMe, have always pledged to keep users' genetic information private. GED Match a small arrival that doesn't offer tests itself, but lets users upload their genetic information in order to find relatives, recently updated its terms in May 2019 to opt-in only for users who were prepared to share their information with the police. This new ruling means that none of that may matter anymore. It could set a precedent that opens up all consumer DNA sites to law enforcement agencies, so long as they obtain a warrant it's likely that other police departments will now feel emboldened to request access to Ancestry.com and 23andMe. Both sites have far more users than GED Match. You also don't necessarily need to have taken a DNA test yourself for this decision to affect you. Pretty much all Americans can now be tracked through their relatives, even if they have never taken a test themselves. I am not even sure if blockchain will be able to prevent this sort of privacy violation. It seems like there are enough people who have submitted their DNA for anyone to be identified based on their relative's DNA. It's possible, though, with blockchain, there could be a way for individuals to at least know if someone has tried to access their genetic information. If you're interested in learning more about decentralized genetic data on the blockchain, Check out my playlist on SoundCloud for a compilation of episodes on this topic. And now back to the show with Andy Singleton, founder of HumanDB. You talked about how some elements of blockchain, particularly the private public keys element of blockchain is beneficial uh, for your use case. But why is blockchain actually, in your opinion, not a good way to store medical records in general? Because there's a lot of startups in the blockchain space that are advertising that they're storing the patient's medical records on the blockchain. Um, yeah, I don't know why they advertise that. I don't know how that got started. Um, all of those efforts are doomed to be failures because it's a very poor software architecture. Um, so what blockchains are really good at, blockchain is a distributed database that says anybody in the world can get this database. It's replicated a thousand times. And I can tell um, some I can tell, for instance, what your balance is in Bitcoin, how many Bitcoin you own by looking at this database. And it's very good for handling small data because it has to be replicated thousands of times and, and frequently. And it's good for handling public data because that's the whole idea. 
it's public. You can put secret things on a blockchain, but they have to be very carefully encrypted. So um, if you think about a medical record is exactly the opposite. Our goal is to have large data so we can provide larger, better informed forms of advice and it's confident. So what people have ended up doing is saying, uh, I, you know, waving their hands, well, I have medical records on the blockchain, but really what they have is a list of pointers. They've published a list of pointers that says this person's data is in this place or these different places where it's essentially in the something similar to the format I'm describing for human to be. It's been encrypted and you can unwrap it if you had the right keys. So that's what it practically means to have data on the blockchain. None of this data is actually on a blockchain. It's too big. It's too confidential. Um, but there's not really any reason why, when you drill down it, there's not really any reason why you need that central blockchain registry for this data. You could just have what I'm proposing, which is each person or their agent tracks the data where it is. And uh, you know, you don't need to keep that index. In fact, the blockchain index is also an example of um, building something for a very bad architecture. So the bad architecture is anybody that wants to do anything with my data and give me advice, they're going to find the, where the data is, they're going to get permission to pull it, and then they're going to use an AI to pull the data into their systems. Mm -hmm. That creates a lot of problems. Now, all of the confidentiality issues that you're trying to get rid of and security issues and data leakage, you've just gone all the way back to I'm sending my data out to somebody I don't know or somebody that I know, but now there's lots of copies of my data because I sent it out by API. Practically, what Apple's doing, what HumanDB is doing, where you package the advice into an app and you send it to the human is going to actually solve those confidentiality problems. And if you're doing that, you don't need the blockchain to keep track of where the data is. So, so just a lot of stupid things about that architecture. So how do you... Uh I just want to be super clear on this. How do you create the algorithms, the AI algorithms in the first place? If you, how do you get the data from the, the patients or the labs and do you de-identify them? Like how does the actual algorithm work? Or are you just creating? Well, remembering that our job is not to build the algorithms. So how, instance, are they, if, how are they going to build the algorithms though? What's their. Right, I'm just, doing, just want to clarify that. Yeah. If, if I have an app that gives me healthcare advice, the person that made that app didn't use any of it. In data. many cases, develop the algorithm, but they package it into an app, and and uh, now and they figure out how to get the information so they could run the algorithm for my benefit. There's a whole other part of the supply chain where people are pulling together records from millions of people like me, mm -hmm. and there are many many different ways to do this. Um, but that's a whole other part of the supply chain where they're pulling that information together. And they are often using the techniques you're talking about. They de-identify it. So they strip off the name and address, and then they send it to a database, um, often government sponsored, like all of us is trying to get a million of these complete records where they can start to do um, statistical analysis or their payers or providers, and they have their own pool of patients to work with, but it's very fragmented. So now they're starting to push, you know, multiple providers are starting to put their records together in these federated systems. That is a whole other area of effort and where people are doing a lot of work and a lot of good work. Um, it only intersects with what I'm doing in two ways. One, because it spits out advice that we can then distribute, 
but two, because we should actually be participating in the system. As I said, right. when we when we deliver advice, we should be grabbing off in data and saying, hey, can we send this back to some sort of aggregated or federated learning system? Most people will say yes. 70% of all people in studies will say, yeah, sure, share that for research. And so we identified information. It becomes a source. Well, uh, in like my that. opinion, it should be fully identified because then there's lots of ways we can put it together and build a bigger record. The U.S. government has done a very interesting thing. Um, oh, it, it should be fully identified for two reasons. One, because then we can make it a bigger record, put two identified pieces together. But the other reason is because de-identified data is basically completely useless. So if you think about de-identified data, it could be like you have brown hair, okay? There's millions of people like that. But once you get to 20 or 30 or 40 attributes or a fragment of a genome, you can be identified. If somebody right. sees you in one database, they know that's the same person in the other database. Anytime it gets to be detailed enough to be interesting, mm -hmm. it does identify you as an individual. So the U.S. government has taken an interesting approach where they've said, look, if you strip off the name and phone number and address, we'll pretend it's de-identified. <laughs> Even though we have a genome here that easily identifies you, in fact, you we use that. it to identify you in these, you know, criminal cases. So, yeah, which is so, happening too. I, I think there was a, a case in Florida recently where um, uh, ancestry or some sort of DNA testing company was um, pulled by the law enforcement agency there, and I think, you know, a person was identified for committing a crime using their genetic information without their you know, knowledge or willingness to, to share that information. So I don't know if you, yeah, and you leave traces even without genetic testing, lots and lots True. of traces and even how you write words. And you don't even have to do a test either. You can have like maybe some of your family members who have done tests and they can identify you that way too. So. Right. But what I'm, what I'm pointing out is there's a lot of, there's, there are now software that can just look at the way you write an email. And identify you. And in fact, there's a rumor going around that the NSA did this because they have the papers written by Satoshi Nakamoto and that they know who Satoshi Nakamoto is just because they read everybody's emails and they can correlate that with the papers that were written and that they're just not telling anyone. So the point is you're constantly leaving these traces. The, the idea of de-identification is just a fiction. And the only reason it works is because people don't care as much about privacy as the legal people think they do. So people would actually much rather have this information be used than have it be confidential. And so that's an interesting like societal shift we may undergo in the next 10 years, maybe because there was a point in time where no one would be sharing their images online with the public. That'd be weird. But now everyone has an Instagram account and it's very normal to share very personal uh, you know, moments in your life online. Even Venmo, people are sharing their transactions publicly. Like, you know, I've shared, you know, I spent $40 uh, for dinner with this person. So that's becoming the norm. So I can see, you know, healthcare data becoming shared, fully identified as a norm. I don't know when or if everyone would be okay with that. If you think about certain mental health illnesses or certain, certain diseases, people might not want to share with their employer, for example. I think it should be a choice. You should have a choice between confidentiality and usefulness of the data <laughs> and sharing. Um, and what we have now is a market failure where we have a lot of rules that push you into that confidentiality direction mm -hmm. and make it really hard to get usefulness out of the data.
Well, we're trying to, I'm, what I'm trying to do is design architectures that give you both options or in fact, give you full usefulness and complete confidentiality. Hmm. For instance, if we never send your data out, but will you, but we use it with these rules and models that we're aggregating advisors, digital advisors, I'll call them. Right. So what level of development are you at now? Like how do you have a team? Uh, have you had any sort of initial testers, beta testers? We're very early stage, and that's sort of the frustration of dealing in this market is that it's taken me now three years just to figure out what to do, mm -hmm. and it's probably going to take me another half a year to figure out a go-to-market strategy. Okay. So at a large scale, this idea that we're going to give you comprehensive medical advice, we're going to have a system for doing that. It's going to work for 7 billion people. There's lots of ways that that could work at scale. But trying to make a two-sided market between the data custody and three-sided, right, and the patients and the and the rules, the suppliers of these rules, the validation process. Um, you probably heard, you know, dealing with everyone in the healthcare business, trying to figure out how that's going to work at a small scale as a go-to-market strategy is very difficult. Um, but we built one round of software, which was the HumanDB software used at MyCancerDB, where we proved out the idea of bringing advice to the data in these containerized in docker containers um i've put that aside because now i'm trying to make a much much simpler api that will create these sort of portable human db boxes where we can where we can do that and, and i've started programming that myself along with a collaborator and you know if we get figure out the go-to-market strategy we'll fund that and we'll be able to deliver that api pretty quickly i have a a different sort of architecture project to figure out how we're going to organize the flow of these rules and models, um, you know, separate from the human to be data custody implementation. And I've been working that with that on that with three people in something called the U S um, I think it's called the AI tech sprint. It was originally called the top health sprint. What is the U.S. government program that was originally organized out of the White House Innovation Fellows and is now being run by the VA that brings together 10 or 12 private sector companies in sprints to develop architecture for using government data and advising patients. And the first sprint last winter was to figure out how to get people into clinical trials, how to look at their information and get, get people into clinical trials. That was pretty successful. There were some good products that came out of that from Foundation and Microsoft. Um, so they did another sprint, which is really more about figuring out how to share this data and architectures that I've been participating in with uh, two people from Philips, mm -hmm. Philips Research. And um, I'm also working with the guys from Sanford and the VA on figuring out how to, how to aggregate together the different models they use, for instance, in pharmacogenomics. So I can give you an example of that, of, of sort of where we've arrived at, sure. if you'd like. But it's right now very conceptual. We haven't implemented the software. Interesting. Yeah, I'd love to hear an example if you, if you want to share that. Okay, so here's a simple example of how um, we have some failures of architecture in, yeah. the, in the healthcare system, and we can fix them with um, just better architecture. The simple example is this thing called pharmacogenomics. So it turns out that for a pretty long list of drugs that are commonly prescribed, I think there's over 100 now in the list of from the FDA, we can look at your genes and we can find variants that will indicate whether you're going to respond positively 
or negatively to these drugs. And it, because it's only a, a small list of genes that we look at, the test for doing this is pretty cheap. There's a company called Sanford that can do it for $49. Um, there are more expensive tests that tell you positively or negatively for more expensive drugs. So for instance, um, a drug called Humira is usually prescribed to people who have rheumatoid arthritis, but in about 40% of the cases, we already know they're not going to respond. Hmm. Um, wow. But we spend $18,000 for a year of giving them the drug before we know they're not going to respond in most cases. So wouldn't it be better to have a $49 test? You can see why that would be better both for the patient and for the payer, if not for the drug company. So the principle of this is simple. If you're at risk of getting any of these drugs that where we can tell whether they're going to work or not, you should get this inexpensive test and we should put that information aside. And when you get a prescription, we should check it. Hmm. And that should happen for Seems a huge enough. number. Right. Yeah, it should happen for a huge number of people. And what Sanford is trying is do, they have this test. And what they're doing is they're working with the VA. They're going to read through 10 million veteran health records, and they're going to, ha they're going to apply Model A. Model A is a qualifier model that says um, this person is probably going to end up getting one of these drugs, so we should do the diagnostic. Okay. We should get the $49 test. They're going to find 250,000 patients that really should get this diagnostic. They're going to ask for a spit sample, and they're going to run that at their lab. And then they're going to save the results. So now you get into where pharmacogenomics actually doesn't work for the patient right now. Um, hospitals and doctors know they should be using this information, but they don't have any place to put it in their systems. And then in a good way of checking it. And even if you went to your doctor, I went to a precision medicine conference and I asked about this. I said, even if I came to you with a pretty convincing printout of a test from Sanford, would you use that? in making a prescription decision. And their answer was, no, we don't have any policy for using that. So, so one way of approaching this would be to say, um, oh, and I'm just gonna get back to the idea of model aggregation. We had one model where we said, you should get this diagnostic because you're at risk. That's pretty general case. Um, happens to basically everybody in the course of their life that they get analyzed this way and it, it pops out, yeah, you should get this test or not. And um, payers are interested in that because they only want to pay for tests that are going to provide relevant information. There's a second model, which is the kind of thing that I've been talking about with AI, which says, okay, now we got the results of this test. Let me print a report. Mm -hmm. Let me print a report that says what drugs you should take and what drugs you should avoid. Or if given a prescription, let me tell you whether that's a good idea or not and what your options are. And there's actually open source rules from an organization called CIPC, where they've been pulling together all these rules that say, if you have this gene variant, which in this format that comes out as common gene panel tests, um, here's what we can tell you about what drugs you should take or not take. So they've already gone through the process of aggregating that kind of rule and applying some level of validation, figuring out what the evidence is for each recommendation we make, what are the papers and studies that back that up. We want to put these models together so that we can use them. And we also want to put the data together. We want to have a situation when Sanford's lab produces the result of the test, they put it in a box 
together with the VA health record, which is the standard fire record that you were talking about. And later on, we have a number of ways that we can go back and check that when someone gets a prescription mm-hmm. and, and provide advice. And um, it's not exactly clear how that's going to work. There are places in the healthcare system where we now do check um, for things like, does this person get too many opioids or are there bad drug interactions? Are they taking drug A, which means they shouldn't take drug B. Um, And there's, there's places in the computer systems where we can check for stuff like that. Or the third thing, which I brought up, which is, is this drug even cost effective? Should they consider something else? And does the payer want me to consider something else? So those are three different kinds of places you would look for this information. And what we have to work to is, is to figure out how to insert this. But the fact that we're doing it as sort of a very simple common API should make it a lot easier. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's a common theme in healthcare that the policy does not follow the technology very closely. So you have a lot of policies that are outdated and can use some revision. It takes a few years, maybe 10 years, like you were mentioning. It takes it takes a lot of time for uh, hospitals to adopt technology. And also the policy has to follow soon after, too. Yeah, and I think there is a whole platform problem, which is these are not software companies. We have yeah. to figure out the easiest ways for them to insert these right. these diagnostic rules. Uh, very cool. Kind of taking a step back and just thinking about the blockchain industry as a whole, how do you feel like it's going? What do you think about its adoption rate in terms of just decentralized currencies and then um, how do you think it's going for the healthcare industry in terms of blockchain adoption? I've been involved in blockchain architectures for a long time. Even before the sort of the ICO craze, I was working on something called Blockchain Clearing Corporation, which was an attempt to use uh, blockchains to settle stock trades, to coordinate between the custody banks and exchanges that move stock around. So. I've been working on blockchain architectures for a long time, um, and I feel like I have a pretty informed opinion about them, which is that they're good for a very specific thing. And the original idea of a blockchain is we're going to replace a bank where we have a bunch of people keeping track of your money or your stocks with a decentralized system that where we don't need that counterpart. We don't need to have a lot of money and equity of the bank to sort of guarantee that these transactions are correct. We can just do the transactions peer to peer directly without the counterparty. That idea is fantastic for banking and for other kinds of financial transactions. And where you see blockchain going is DeFi, right? Decentralized finance, taking that basic idea of we can move money without the counterparty and making it to we can lend out money without pooling it a bank and having the bank lend it out. We can do insurance. We can have derivatives. Decentralized finance is, I think, a great application for blockchain and one that's moving forward. In fact, the only <clears throat> the only application that's moving forward. Attempts to apply it in the healthcare system have mostly been stupid. Um, there were attempts to put health records on the blockchain, bad architecture. There were attempts to use sort of token economics to motivate people to be healthier. We can get, we'll give you these tokens, which you don't care about and are really hard to handle um, if you you know, go running twice a week. And um, nobody wanted that. I mean, there's a long history that that kind of behavioral health intervention 
doesn't work. They could have just read the history before wasting everybody's time on that. Um, so there's been a lot of the, applied to healthcare. It, it hasn't been that helpful. I think there will eventually be essentially transactional and supply chain systems that come out of this that are you know, along the lines of decentralized finance. Um, the, there's a consortiums that have been that are working on these workflow systems and have been for a long time. So I don't know how it's going, but the basic idea is the patient shows up um, at the doctor, the doctor identifies them, the blockchain decentralized system can say whether they have insurance, what the insurance company will pay for. Doctor does something, gets approved by this somewhat decentralized system, and then they get paid, hmm. right? Yeah. That kind of workflow, which is is totally different from data advice and, and record, you know, human records, um, is it's an okay application for blockchain. I say okay because in most cases, it's easier just to have a SaaS application, a centralized database to keep track of all that. 99.9% .9 of the time, that's how it's done now. But there may eventually be some, um, you know, more decentralized blockchain systems as the healthcare system, you know, maybe becomes more global and decentralized. For instance, it would be great to be able to pay for the advice you get from this global advisory system we're building in some system like that. Interesting. Yeah. And it makes me think of how innovation works and how it could work at scale. And I know that you work a lot in innovation. Um, and one question I was thinking about was why are most large companies not able to innovate at industry scale? Um, I actually investigated this. I pulled together a group of management consultants under the label of Maxos matrix of services, which is a way of thinking about how companies like Google and Amazon innovate. They have a whole bunch of web services that are reusable, essentially software, and they can weave that together into products, new products with new product managers. If you're Amazon, you can actually have hundreds of lines of business and be all constantly going into new lines of business. And, and so we looked at that and we said, well, it is possible for big companies to innovate. That's one way to do it. Maxos matrix of services. Um, but when we went and we literally went and talked to other big companies like banks um, and, you know, one of the world's largest banks who I will not um, name, I sat down with the CIO and he said, yeah, this is a great idea. We all know we should do this, this architecture, essentially for how we organize our people and our software and our products. Um, but I have 10,000 people and they're all the wrong people. They can't do it. And what is really happening there is these companies make money without innovating. They have business models that are actually pretty good. If you think about how does a company get to be huge, successful, and powerful, they have a good business model. And so the people that work, it's not really the people, it's the incentives. The people that work in that system have no incentive to screw it up and try something new. Most of what I do as an entrepreneur is a failure. I would, I would never recommend anybody go into entrepreneurship as a career. It's just the failure rate is too high. Essentially, all the money's made in one project in 100 which is too low of a hit rate for a big company. So they have strong incentives. If they're making money now, they have strong incentives not to do it. The problem with that, in my opinion, is that um, we end up relying too much on startups. With a startup, you don't have a business model. So you have this very strong motivation to keep trying new things until you can support your family. And it's, you know, it's completely different than the motivation at a big successful company but you also work at a much smaller scale. So we end up with lots and lots of startups doing things that they that can be done at small scale 
but not enough big organizations doing things like putting a man on the moon or building a chip with 3 billion transistors or making a machine that can read your cancer genome and, and know exactly how it works and how to cure it. So that's the problem is that we've kind of lost that. And what's fantastic about blockchain is that blockchain is an attempt to solve that problem, to say, okay, if people aren't going to form into big companies to do these sorts of things, we'll, we'll form a thousand companies into a blockchain economy. Mm-hmm. And then they'll innovate at scale as a community. So really fantastic um, ideas and techniques coming out of the blockchain and open source world that they kind of solve that problem with big companies are designed to help solve it. And so um, where I just was trashing blockchain as an architecture, you know, literally the blockchain as a database architecture for these applications, if we if we put the, the blockchain aside and we talk about cryptography, fantastically useful, right? That's what's gonna allow me to do data custody and make this data more useful. Key management, that's what's gonna allow us to share this data. Open source amazing technology that's what's going to allow us to innovate at global scale and get thousands of knowledge providers providing advice to billions of people Hmm. and of course cloud systems to weave it all together so so we can take these ideas and um out of the blockchain world just just uh, edit the blockchain 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 buzzword (laughs) a little bit and come up with amazing sources of large-scale innovation so as an entrepreneur, you mentioned failure is, you know, kind of happens very often, but I'm wondering if it's not too personal, could you share some of your biggest failures or mistakes? Um, I've had so many of them that um, I don't, you know, I'm not even going to go down the list. I'm going to answer that statistically, okay. which is that there's one thing I wish I knew when I was 20 Okay. before I got into this business and I've been self-employed literally since I was 24 or something. Um, and that is that all of the money and the vast majority of the impact comes from a very few big wins. It's, um, Hmm. it's a mathematical concept called power law distributions. So if you look at a venture capital portfolio, you know, sort of 90% of the projects that they invest in don't make money, um, for the investor. I mean, Probably about 70% don't make money overall. 20% only make money for the people that are working on it, which shows that, you know, that's good news for the entrepreneur. If you're a good businessman, you can make money for yourself. Um, Only 10% ever pay back for the investor in any meaningful way. And of those 1%, the 1% that sort of are unicorns basically make all the money. Hmm. So one Facebook pays for 1,000 or 10,000 failures and that's just no matter it's a weird fact of math in the modern economy and when you look at it that way you realize that as an entrepreneur doing individual projects it's just a it's a terrible risk adjusted game and what you need what you would actually do is instead of doing what i do or did it what I did was I start businesses and then try to do a good job. And generally I could make some money because I got to be pretty good at it through long practice. Um, but I didn't have big wins. And what you would actually do is you would, you would start collaborating with people to create a portfolio 
where you're working on, you know, you basically need a hundred of these little bits of a hundred of these projects. It's kind of what entrepreneurs do when they get into the angel game. And um, at the same time, you would make sure that any given business that you worked on had the potential to be huge, right? So you'd be, you'd be using those two different ideas. And, and so I've had businesses like Assembly that were really good businesses, bootstrapped, you know, tens of thousands of customers, profitable, but I wouldn't do that again. You know, and I worked on that for 11 years. I wouldn't do that again. I would work on HumanDB, which is a moonshot for delivering, you know, restructuring fundamentally what we know about people and how we can advise them. And I would work on an unbundled fund, which is a way of creating portfolios of potentially hundreds of small cap investments. What would you say is uh, one of your favorite books that has inspired you? Um, <laughs> all right, I'm going to go weird, weird on you with that one. Perfect. I saw that question on the list. Um, I have a book uh, in my bookshelf called The Origins of Order, which is it's an unreadable book. Okay, It's sort of like art cinema um, written back in the A-Life days, back in like 1990 by a biologist named Stuart Kaufman. And what he observed is what he was trying to figure out is, you know, really at a large scale, how do we get life? Okay. What's the origin of life? It's a very complicated organization and the, the chances that you could have it come together by, you know, randomly are very low. And how do we get evolution? Um, and how do, um, how do cells work? So there's literally thousands and, you know, hundreds of thousands of circuits in a cell mm -hmm. where one protein gets made and it triggers another protein or turns off another protein. In fact, that's what he was looking at. He called it NK networks. You have, you know, N genes or N sort of inputs feeding into K outputs. And so he did this kind of mathematical thing with these NK networks. And there's weird things that, so I'm going to get to why this is interesting. So there's a lot of things we don't understand about biology and evolution. So for instance, there's much less than 10,000 genes that determine how your brain works, but we end up with a trillion neurons that do more than 10,000 things. How is that possible? And so what he observed is just from the mathematical ways that these gene networks work, there's what he calls attractors. Um, there's inherent order in the universe. It forms into coherent networks even if you just have uh, you know, very simple, random mathematical simulations. And this can be used to explain a lot of things like um, cancer. You know, with cancer, you flip over from this method of cell behavior, flip over to that method of cell behavior. It's a different attractor. They call it in the language of chaos theory or, or is they, in, the, in, the, in the business nonlinear dynamics. Um, so he was able to take a very sort of pure look at this that's changed a lot about how we i think about innovation and how it happens and you know ultimately where life came from and where it's going hmm. interesting i'll try so, to check that one just out. nothing in the world something you would never normally think about uh next question i'm kind of like wrapping up here i have some final questions for you who would you say like a famous role model that you might have that has influenced your work a role model that's influenced my it could be work. like a scientist or a business leader inventor yeah so there's been a series of economists that have 
written about technology, not as sort of this weird thing that happens outside the economy, but as part of the economy. Um, a guy that I really am interested in talking to you right now is a guy named Brian Arthur. Brian Arthur. He wrote this book, The Nature of Technology, and where he really looked at, he's an economist, but he looked at technology essentially the way an engineer would look at it. And he ends up in some of the areas that I've been exploring with um, evolutionary dynamics. Um, I think there's a lot that I could add to this, mm-hmm. to, to his work, um, to Brian Arthur's work on the nature of evolution. But there's also a lot that I've learned about that practical progress of how technology gets, that gets built up from this. And what I like about it is that it combines... Um, practical economic theory with engineering. Interesting. Um, what would you say you do during your free time or do you have free time? It sounds like you're doing a lot of work on many different projects, but I'm curious what you do in your free time. Um, one of the things I've been doing a lot of is mountain biking. Mm-hmm. It's really fun. Um, I can do it from my house. So on days when I work at home, I can go out for lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you'll find that a lot of guys like me who are older who can't run anymore um, take up biking and especially mountain biking because it's so fun. And uh, I try to look for fun things like that. Yeah. And is it the knees that go first? I'm just because I've been having problems with my right knee. I'm curious when you say older, you can't run. Is that because? Of- well, you'll find if you go biking that a lot of guys are in their 40s and 50s. Um, I used to run cross country, but now my knees and ankles are a little beat up. Um, the mountain biking is not safe either. So I end up in the emergency room about once a year from hurling myself off of a ledge. But, uh, you know, you you don't want to leave a good looking corpse as they say. So let's go for it. Fair. Um, yeah. So Andy, this has been a great conversation. It's very enlightening. Uh, I feel like it's a little bit different than my previous conversations, and I appreciate that, and thank you for sharing that. I was wondering if you had any final takeaways for the audience. Yes, I think the takeaway is that um, I encourage people to go big in what they're trying to do. We now have these um, technologies and sort of social engineering principles that are going to allow us to organize at global scale. And um, while I've I think blockchain is an example of that. Um, there's lots of other ways that we can organize and work together as humans. It's going to be exciting. Awesome. I wish you lots of luck on your endeavor with HumanDB. I'm looking forward to hearing about your progress. Again, Annie, thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Ray. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.